0: The Old Testament reading is from Jeremiah chapter 23, verses 1 through 6, found on page 725 of the Old Testament. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pastures, says the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who shepherd my people. It is you who have scattered my flocks and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them, So I will attend to you for your evil doings, says the Lord. Then I myself will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the lands where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will raise up shepherds over them who will shepherd them, and they shall not fear any longer or be dismayed, nor shall any be missing, says the Lord. The days are surely coming, says the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. This is the word of the Lord. What
1: a wonderful day in the life of the church. Anytime we welcome uh, new members, uh, I think it's a cause for celebration. I hope it never becomes old, never becomes routine. Uh, uh, The worship leaders always gather in my office uh, before worship for prayer and to go make last minute adjustments and I was so excited I couldn't sit down. I mean, this this is a day for a celebration in our church's life. Uh, Our our New Testament reading today requires a bit of introduction. If if you're going to uh, turn to it, you may want to do that now while I explain a bit about what we're going to read. Uh, Today, as you may have noticed on the front of your worship bulletin, although I suspect that no one pays attention to this except me, uh, today is a day on the church calendar known as Christ the King. And briefly, what that means is that the church calendar uh, has come to an end as of today. And then we start all over again next Sunday with the beginning uh, of Advent. And so that's not exactly earth-shaking news. I didn't see anyone smile or uh, get excited about that. Uh, but I'll tell you why I love this day. And first of all, uh, I love it because there is so much great music uh, written for this day. Every year on this day, we get to sing hymns like, crown him with many crowns. Uh, all hail the power of Jesus' name. Jesus reigned. Uh, Jesus shall reign where 'er the sun. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Thank you, Randall. And and then uh, even a more contemporary song, uh, Lord, I lift your name on high. So what all those songs have in common, and they're all written for uh, this theme that we're going to talk about today, what all of those songs have in common uh, is a particular way of talking about Jesus. Not that he was a great teacher. There have been plenty of great teachers in in history, not that he was a miracle worker, believe it or not, there have been a few miracle workers. Uh, not as a friend, we already have a good song uh, about that subject. Uh, what all of those songs I mentioned have in common is this idea that Jesus is Lord or King or ruler. And and not just any ruler, but ruler of all and above all and and, and before all and all in all. Uh, on this day, the superlatives just keep adding up. Uh, uh, poets and songwriters don't even try to be modest. I mean, they, they give Jesus every title they can think of. Uh, and that leads me to the second reason I, uh, I love this day. It's not just about the music. What, what happens when we celebrate uh, or observe a day like this on, on the calendar is that we celebrate Jesus' victory in advance. All right, the game isn't over, so to speak. The, the votes have not yet been counted. Sorry to bring up that subject. Uh, uh, history uh, is uh, still not yet at an end. Uh, as I came in this morning on the train, it was clear to me that history is still unfolding. And yet, this is astonishing when you think about it, uh, and it's audacious, and it's bold, and it's cheeky, and it's fearless. We are celebrating the final victory in advance in spite of all of the evidence that seems to suggest that he is not victorious at all. So confident are we about the final outcome, about how all of this is going to turn out uh, as a result of what happened on Easter morning, that we allow ourselves to imagine the day when Jesus Christ is finally acknowledged as Lord of all, Lamb on the throne, and that's why I like this day. And for more than 35 years, maybe you'll be surprised to hear this, I have arranged the preaching schedule so that I could preach on this day. <laughs> I have always wanted to be the one who says what needs to be said about Jesus Christ. So, with that introduction, listen to these words as they come to us from uh, Paul's letter to the Colossians. And I, mean, I invite you to hear the power and, and, and sheer wonder of what Paul is is saying to us here. Paul writes, May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from His glorious power. And may you be prepared to endure everything with patience, while joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in the light. He has rescued us from the power of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. This is the word of the Lord. (laughs) Dear friends of Jesus Christ, what has always astonished me uh, about uh, the first days of the church in Jerusalem, in addition to the fact that they all got along with each other, and, and, and that they shared all their possessions in common, And and that they shared all of their meals together? Although that is astonishing in itself, I'll admit that. But what has always astonished me even more about this early group of Christians is that they got it. I mean, how quickly the followers of Jesus Christ went from being kind of dense and and thick-headed and slow to understand and, and not really grasping what Jesus was trying to say to incredible theologians... You know, you, you you read the opening verses of John's Gospel, and every year we we hear these, and they remind us of Christmas. But but think of what they are trying to say about Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things came into being through him, and without him, not one thing came into being. So, you you read these opening verses of John's Gospel and you think, oh my, they get it? They grasp the significance of who Jesus was. They haven't even invented the word Trinity yet. But they are this close. You know, what they are describing, what John is describing in those opening verses is the Trinity. They are starting to understand that the church will not put this into confessional language for more than 200 years, but they all are already grasping the significance of his life. But John's gospel was more than likely the last uh, of the four gospels to be written, and estimates vary, uh, as you can imagine. And scholars love to debate this sort of thing. Uh, uh, but these uh, and, and these pieces of papyrus did not come to us with publication dates. So let, let's say that the fourth gospel uh, was written in the 70s or the 80s or perhaps even the 90s, uh, 90 A.D. Uh, most scholars seem to prefer the, the, the later dating, and and then when you hear that, you think, well, I mean, maybe it's not so surprising. Maybe it's not so surprising that they were theologically sophisticated. They had time to think about this and and to reflect on it and. and and to put all of the the pieces together, right? So think about this. The Apostle Paul is writing this letter to uh, the Colossians in the 50s. While he is sitting in prison waiting uh, for his trial, that's 20 years or so after the death and resurrection of of Jesus, and he is writing very sophisticated theology. Uh, Jesus, Paul writes, is the image of the invisible God. We'll come back to that. He is the firstborn of all creation, and I read those words and I think, where does that come from? And we believe that Paul, of course, was inspired. He wasn't working on his own. God's spirit was upon him, and it was it was in him. Plus, he was a very bright and well-trained theologian before he became a follower of of Christ. But this is astonishing. I can't emphasize this strongly enough. The the words we heard today are extraordinary. Our jaws should be dropping as we hear these words. And and not just because of, of the beauty, although they are beautiful, but because of the understanding and the depth that we find here. I want to go through some of this with you, and if I can, I want to communicate some of the wonder of what we have here. And I'm going to throw up more Greek words this morning than you have ever heard from me before. Let's start with what Paul uh, says about Jesus' divinity. And and see, I don't even think this is the most astonishing truth contained here. I'm going to save that for point number two. Two of two. So so let's start with Jesus as God. Uh, Paul doesn't begin with Jesus as a great teacher, as I mentioned. He doesn't begin by describing uh, Jesus as a miracle worker. Instead... Paul writes that Jesus is the one with supremacy over heaven and earth. Oh, my! All uh, of the power and might that there ever was or ever will be. I think the, the, the Greek that, that Paul uses here, uh, tapanta, means everything. Could, could not be more encompassing. This isn't uh, any uh, part of the creation, Every part of the creation comes under his rule. You know, From A to Z, from top to bottom, every single part of it. Uh, then Paul uses a little word here that, may, uh, that has become uh, quite popular in the computer age, and that, and that word is icon. Uh, previously, the only time Christians ever thought about icons uh, was when we thought about those images that we find in Orthodox churches or Orthodox homes. To, to us, those are icons, But but Paul uses the the, the Greek word icon here, and he gives it a very particular meaning. And and if you think that those little images on the computer screen that we tap on to open an application, if you think that's all that he means, then uh, you're going to miss what Paul has in mind here. Uh, Jesus, Paul writes, is the icon of God. Now an icon can either be a, a representation or something, or a manifestation and Paul has this latter sense in mind, please stay with me, this is big. If Jesus were a representation of God, he would be like that that image on your computer screen. So the image is not iTunes, and it's not Skype, and it's not whatever program you want to open, but clicking on the image leads you to the real thing. So what Paul is saying, and, and, and this is what leads me to say he is just astonishing here, what Paul is saying is that Jesus is the manifestation of God. He is the perfect manifestation of God. Do you want to know what God is like? <laughs> do, do, do you want to get close to God? Then look at Jesus. Everything w- we would want to know about God and, and everything that is important to know about God is present in Jesus. Jesus. In in, in this person, Jesus Christ, Paul is saying, uh, perfectly manifests God to us. And if someone were to say to you, and I hear this all the time, and it comes in different forms, but uh, essentially it it amounts to the same thing, uh, I I can believe that there is a God. You know, and I can believe that uh, God uh, created uh, everything, I can accept that, and and it always sounds so generous when people talk this way, as though they're so open minded. But Jesus, this is a continuation Jesus, ah, no. Uh, these people say, I have a problem with him. I, I, I find it hard to believe that he is God. And what Paul would say to that, you know, because he wasn't as worried as I usually am about being nice to people. He never took a course at seminary in pastoral care. So he always said exactly what he was thinking, and it was blunt, and it was direct. What Paul would say to that, and what he does say in this lesson for today, is no, nine. You can't know God. You can't really know God until you look at Jesus. He is the way we understand who God is. One more Greek word. Paul uses the, the word pleroma here to say that Jesus Christ, that in Jesus Christ is all the fullness of God. That in Jesus Christ all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So pleroma means fullness or, 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 or completeness. And, and, and Paul is saying you don't need any more. You don't need to click on Jesus to get to the God program. Right? He is the God you are searching for. I hear people say, and I'm I'm sure you've heard this uh, uh, before as well, it it was considered to be a heresy in the early church, by the way. I hear people say that the the God of the Old Testament is so different from the God of the the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament seems angry all the time, and he's punishing people, and he's sending floods and plagues, and and locusts, and that sort of thing. And, And Jesus, I don't know. Jesus seems so full of love and compassion and mercy. Right? And, and I would love to hear what Paul ha- would have to say about that. Right? Uh, he would be direct and, and, and honest. Uh, you, can, you, you, you can believe me about that. He would say, I think, that we should take a harder look at Jesus. Right? Yes, there was mercy and compassion and love in Jesus, but wasn't there also a deep concern for justice? Was, I mean, Weren't there flashes of anger when, when, when people were gaming the system? And when people took advantage of others and, and, and exploited them, I, I think that, that, that what Paul would say to us is that the God of the Old Testament is very much present in the Jesus we meet in the New Testament. I want to move on at this point to the uh, the other point, the only other uh, point today. Uh, n- n- not only was Jesus a perfect manifestation of God, which ought to be startling enough and enough for any sermon. Uh, The Bible also teaches us that Jesus was the perfect manifestation of a human being. In in other words, do you want to know what it means to be human? (laughs) Do you want to know what human beings are capable of when, when they are at their very best? Do you want to see the best example of humanity that we have ever known? Then look at Jesus. Jesus had a mother and a father. Uh, We even know their names. Joseph disappears, he seems to disappear early in the story and legend has it that he died before Jesus became an adult. We don't know. But Jesus had a mother and a father and his mother was with him through the end of his life. So he was born and he had a childhood and and he made his way into adulthood, like all of us. And and, and not only that, he had a hometown and he had a place of birth and, and yes, he came to us with a gender. There is no mystery about that. He came to us with an ethnic group and a skin color probably different from my own. The Bible doesn't disguise that either. He came to us as a person. And he had friendships, and and, and these were life-giving friendships, and he cared about these friends deeply. He came to us, as I said, as someone who had mercy and compassion and love, and in other words, he was fully human. Except, as the, the letter to the Hebrews puts it, without sin. And that, of course, is quite a big exception. Uh, We try to love other people and we fail, uh, often spectacularly, Uh, just to be honest about it. We try to have friendships and we fail, often spectacularly. We try to live exemplary lives to to put the needs of other people ahead of our own and and to look out for those who who can't seem to care for themselves. And and we fail, uh, often spectacularly. And, and, and that's the thing, isn't it? Right? Jesus came as one of us. Ears, eyes, nose, hair, skin, bones, a mother and a father who were not perfect, who, who, who nevertheless did their best to, to raise him, and, and he did not fail. He succeeded. And not only that, he succeeded spectacularly. No one else has ever come close to what he was able to do. I want to mention one important characteristic about this perfect manifestation of a human being. Jesus could be hurt. Uh, He was hurt. In fact, he was hurt more deeply and more profoundly than any of us will ever be hurt. He was disappointed. He experienced grief. He was sad. He wept. He was let down, he knew pain, the physical kind, as well as the emotional kind. And that too is one of the characteristics of our humanity. We sometimes think, and and tell me if you think I have this wrong, but we we, we sometimes think that we should be better than we often are. When we hurt and when we are wounded, which is almost inevitable in, in life, we sometimes think that we should be better than that. Uh, to, to be hurt, in our way of thinking, is a sign of weakness, or, or worse yet, it's a sign of failure. We think we should be stronger than that. If only we had a stronger faith. <laughs> if only we had more trust in God. If only my parents had done a better job of raising me. <clears throat> I would not be hurt as much as I am, or as uh, deeply as I often am. So let me say something uh, to all of the perfectionists uh, who are here this morning. And I'm guessing that we have a lot of them. Churches attract Uh, perfectionists. Uh, Have you ever noticed that? It's clear to me churches are usually filled with people who are ashamed of themselves for one reason or another. So if you are hurting today and if you have been wounded along the way, if you have failed at something, to me that's what it means that you are a human being. You were born with this capability. You were created in the image and likeness of God. There's that word again, icon of God. You were created to be a reflection of, of God's glory, to reflect his glory. All right? when, when I look closely at you in, in coffee hour in a few minutes, I'm going to get very close to a few of you, and I'm going to look and I'm, I'm going to see God's reflection in you. Don't be scared. <laughs> and then as you look back at me, you should be able to see it in me too. Something happened along the way, of course, and that perfect mirror that we were created to be was distorted, and it was scratched, and it was broken. But you and I still bear something of the image of God. No matter how difficult it might be to see. God made you and me like himself. God made us or or put us together in such a way that we could be hurt. And far from an imperfection, I think that's a sign of our humanity. When we cease to feel pain, when we cease to grieve the loss of things that are precious to us, I think it's then that we should worry. I am a perfectionist. I was raised by perfectionist parents, and I regret to say that I have passed perfectionism to my children. Uh, it's not a gene, as I thought uh, earlier in my life. Instead, it's a way of looking at life, and I gave it to them, and and I have apologized to them uh, for doing it. Uh, It's an awful thing. It's a curse. Uh, And so what happens if you are a perfectionist? Well, it it means that you feel like a failure a a lot of the time. You can appear confident and uh, successful, and of course you want other people to, to think that about you, but inside Uh, You know the truth about yourself, and this is just how perfectionists think, Uh, and it's a cancer inside us. The good news that I have for you this morning is that God created you to be a human being, and along with your humanity is going to come some disappointment, sometimes a great deal of it. Along with your humanity is going to come sadness, and and who wouldn't be sad at the state of the world today? Along with your humanity is going to come the occasional letdown. I hope it's occasional. Along with your humanity is going to come pain, sorry, and there will be hurt, and there will be grief, and there will be tears. And far from being signs of weakness, those are signs that we were created in the image and likeness of God. We share those characteristics with none other than Jesus himself. And far from evidence of your imperfection, I would say that those things are evidence of something else entirely. They are evidence of your humanity. The people I love the most and the people I trust the most in life, the people I want to spend time with are people who can be hurt and people who can feel disappointment and grief. And I would like to think that they will grieve inconsolably when I am gone. So this is the promise that we have, uh, just to complete the picture. The promise we have is that our image will one day be restored. The mirror doesn't reflect the the light very well right now, I'll grant you that. Uh, You have to look very closely to see anything resembling God's image in me. But one day, we will all shine as brightly as the sun. Our reflection is going to be restored. One day Jesus the Lamb will be on the throne and we will be made perfect. We will be made perfect human beings. I don't know about you, but I think that is something worth celebrating. Will you pray with me? Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for these words of, of Paul and for their power, They remind us that Jesus has become for us the way we know you. When we see him and when we listen to him, when we we get close to him, it's then that we are getting close to you. Thank you for creating us to be human and to be able to experience all that life offers to us and, of course, help us to become the people you created us to be, restored and whole and shining brightly with your love.